Man, it's good to be together this morning, and I'm so glad you're here. If, you, uh, if it's your first time here, I know we have people that come here for the first time every week. Let me say again, I mean, we're so glad you're here. Uh, it's such a joy that uh, we get to gather every week, and if it's your first time, I hope you know this is a place uh, that you can come back to, and one day we hope you will feel like you can come home to, because for so many of this, uh, this church, Riverside, is such a faith family, and it's a place that we love to gather every week and to uh, enjoy this time this time of being together in the spirit of worship uh, with God and, and all, of, all of you. So it's, it's a joy. It's a joy to be here. And for a lot of you, I'm looking out this morning. I'm seeing some of you haven't seen all summer because we've all been traveling. And I know we still have a lot of people that are traveling. Uh, but it's good that we can gather. And uh, it's good to, good to be here. On that note, just to mark your calendars, one quick thing, and then we'll move on. But August 28th. Uh, that Sunday, about a month from now, is going to be kind of a makeup Sunday in terms of our giving. A lot of us have been traveling, and if you remember, just a couple of weeks ago, we had actually canceled church because the power went out, and we had no AC, no lights, no nothing. And so uh, we've kind of designated that Sunday, August 28th, as sort of a makeup Sunday. So just kind of be planning for that. I'm not even worried about it. This church, uh, some of you know this, and some of you, if you don't, I'll tell you. In this community, this church has a reputation for being a very generous church. And uh, so I want you to know there's no worry, there's no concern, but it is an opportunity for us to, to give. And if you've missed, if, you've, uh, if you were out of town one week or couldn't come that day, we had to close down for the, for the heat and the AC. Uh, that's a Sunday we've kind of earmarked for that day. So if I could tell you today that there's one thing that you could do or change and it would incredibly enhance your prayer life, would you want to know what it is? If I could convince you that there's this one thing, this one problem that most of us are guilty of, and if we could fix it, if we could change it, if we could tweak it, if I could tell you that if you did this one thing, that it would allow you to experience the presence of God in prayer like you've never felt before, it would allow you to experience the power of God like you've never felt before, would you want to know what it is? I think you might. I know I was excited when I found it, when I kind of discovered it. Not that I'm that smart, but it's just this profound. Because there's this thing in prayer, and if you've prayed for very long or if you've ever prayed before, and by the way, some of you I know, you've never prayed. And you're not even sure about this whole prayer thing. You're not really sure about this whole God thing. You don't even know if you even believe the whole Bible, but you do believe in God. And so I want to let you know to hang on because I think there's something here for you today too. But if you ever have prayed before, maybe if you've prayed for a long time and for whatever reason, like me, You've got discouraged in prayer. I want to tell you that this truth that we're going to kind of stumble upon today has the power to give you great hope and great encouragement. So what we've done this summer is we've looked at the stories of Jesus, okay? And, and again, even if you don't, you don't buy into the whole Bible thing, you know that Jesus was a master storyteller. Uh, in fact, his stories are told throughout the world. Even today, you'll hear references to him on the radio about someone being a good Samaritan or about a prodigal son coming home. People know the stories of Jesus. He was a master storyteller. And a lot of his stories, a lot of the time, they started with these words, the kingdom of heaven is like. And Jesus, no doubt, Jesus had in mind uh, if this future time when we're all going to gather and be together in heaven, uh, be with him forever and ever. But so much of his teaching and his life and his ministry. It seems like to me was trying to communicate to us what life is supposed to be like now. In fact, he, he only taught his disciples one prayer. And in that prayer, he said, pray this way, that, that things would be on earth as they are in heaven. 
And the story we're going to look at today is a story that Jesus actually told about prayer. So I want you to hang on because there's going to be an incredible thing that I think could radically change the way you pray. But before I tell you that story, I want to tell you a couple of, a couple other stories. Uh, some of you know, and, I, and I'm sorry, I, I, I use this a lot because it's just an easy target. But uh, my son, Will, if you don't know, he, he loves baseball. Here's a picture of him on the screen. This summer, he played uh, all-star baseball. A lot of your kids play sports, so you know how this works. And at one point in the season, his coach pulled him to the side and, and he gave him some batting uh, instruction, some advice and special coaching. And what I thought was interesting is he didn't tell him to hold the bat higher. He didn't say to, to get closer to the plate. He didn't say, hey, watch, uh, watch the, this four-part video series and how to become a better hitter, or here's the, 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 the 10 steps to, to, to hitting home runs. He said this. He said, when you go up to the plate and it's the first pitch, make sure you keep your strike zone really, really small. That's all he said. My daughter, Ella Grace, this uh, spring had a birthday. And for her birthday, we started talking about, what do you want for your birthday? And she started getting really excited because up to this point in her life, she had the little princess bike with the training wheels, but she said, I want a, I want a big girl bike, right? And every parent knows that, that getting your kid a bike, the actual purchase is not a big deal. The, the, the colossal pain is teaching your kid how to actually ride a bike, right? And so you're out there for hours running half marathons behind them, trying to get them to find their balance. And for whatever reason, I am a, I'm an incredible failure at this, this task as a father. And so we're over at the bike shop here in town the other day, and we're talking to the bike experts. These guys, they, they know everything there is to know about biking. And so I'm talking to them about my daughter. I'm saying, I, I just, she can't, it's not clicking. She's not getting it. What do we do? And they said this. They said, here's what, here's what you need to do. They said, drop the seat as low as possible and take off the pedals. Let her scoot around uh, the streets, for, the sidewalks for a little while, and within no time, she'll find her balance and she'll take off. I thought, huh, that's interesting. I promise you, both of those stories are going to change your life in a minute, but hold on. <laughs> Luke 18. If you have a Bible, if you have it on your, your, your iPad, your iPhone, whatever, open up to Luke 18, and we're going to dive in to another story but this story is a story that Jesus told. It's a way better story. And it's a story about prayer. If you were with us last week, we, we looked at the story right before this story Jesus told about prayer. And in that story, he reminded us, he reminded his disciples to always pray and never give up. Those were the exact words Luke said. He said, this story that Jesus told, he told his disciples so that they would always, always, always pray and never, ever, ever give up. And it was a reminder, it was a reminder to us that we are a people as disciples, as followers, as believers in Jesus who have unparalleled hope, even in these times, because we have uncommon access to someone, to the one who can change absolutely everything. Well, right after that story that Jesus told about always praying and never giving up, Jesus tells this story, but Luke says he sort of turns his, his, his head. He, he turns his attention to a different audience. And this is really important because I want you to hear who Jesus is talking to in this parable. Luke 18 and verse 9, Luke says this. Then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. All right, I think this is really, really important. Don't ever skip over the audience of Jesus, right? He's turned his attention from his disciples, and now he's focused on this group of people who, for whatever reason, they have great confidence in themselves and their own righteousness, and they absolutely scorn everyone else. And if you asked me to, 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 to say, what is this whole next story going to be about? 
I would say it all hinges on this one word. If it's in your Bible, you should underline it or highlight it. In mine is the word scorn. In yours, it may say contempt or it may say look down upon. It's this idea that, that there's a group of people who, for whatever reason, are caught up in their own righteousness. And I don't know about you, but at some point, I think righteousness stops becoming righteousness when it becomes self-righteousness. Amen? When you start looking down on anyone else for any other reason, for any reason at all, that's when righteousness, I really do believe, stops becoming righteousness. And we have to ask ourselves, don't we? Before we even dive into the words of Jesus, we have to ask ourselves, right? I mean, is there ever potential for you and I to be in this category of people where for whatever reason we've gotten too caught up in our own righteousness and that for whatever reason in our heart maybe if it's buried deep in the recesses of our heart maybe it's something we don't even know it's there but it's there there's a, a scorn a contempt there's a group of people or a person that we for whatever reason devalue and look down on And so Jesus tells a story, verse 10. Like he often does, he paints the picture with with two people, right? So two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, and the other was a despised tax collector. Now, Jesus sets up these two characters. Again, he's trying to paint this picture for us. One is a Pharisee. One a Pharisee, if you know anything about the Bible, is a religious, you know, leader, uh, someone that was looked up to because they knew the Scripture and they knew the Word of God and they taught the Word of God. The other is a despised tax collector. This is this is worse than a sinner. This is the lowest of the low. So Jesus paints this picture of two different people who couldn't be further apart from each other. And I wonder if Jesus was telling the story today, like how would he set this up? You know, if like he was here actually and he was telling the story. Yeah, there was a there were two guys that went to pray. They went to church to pray. One was, you pick, one was an elder, one was an embezzler, one was a small group leader, and one was this guy that committed identity theft. One was uh, a Sunday school teacher, and the other guy was this homeless man that was on the street. See, Jesus wants to set up for us this tension between a supposed righteous man and someone who is presumed to be completely unrighteousness. And he sets up this contrast, and he says this. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. And I want you to to, to lean in and listen. These are the words of the Pharisees he prayed to God. I thank you, God, that I am not like other people. Cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of my income. I don't know what it's like at your house. At my house, whenever we sit down at dinner or any time to pray, really, whatever, uh, we'll often get together and I'll say, who wants to pray uh, to to our little family? And and before I can even get the words out of my mouth, sometimes my youngest daughter, Emma, who's five years old, she'll either say me or, in an effort not to be beaten out, she'll just close her eyes and start praying as fast as she can. It's, yeah, it's hilarious. And, and, and the other kids are like, their eyes are still open. They're trying to grab each other's hands. And, and then she's done and their jaws are dropped and somebody's crying because they didn't get a chance to pray yet. I have such spiritual kids. And, uh, and, and then it's over within like, literally like five seconds. She said like a thousand words. And I'm like, Emma, do you think God caught any of that? Like, 
like, you just flew by, you know? And, uh, and sometimes I wonder if we don't do the same thing with God, right? It, that's what this, this prayer of this Pharisee sounds a little bit like to me. Sounds a little bit rote, a little bit memorized. A little bit like a prayer he's probably prayed a thousand times. And just like my daughter, I wonder if he didn't just rush into the presence of God and rush back out. And sometimes, we're not five years old anymore, but sometimes I think we do the same thing. And and it's funny, because if you were to go into anyone else's presence who had any importance or any priority in your worldview, you would no doubt take such time to prepare, such attention to detail. You would make sure that you were dressed right and that you had the right words in your mind to say and that you were ready to come into the presence of this person that you were eager to meet. Yet how often do we just rush into the presence of God, rattle off our list of demands, and run back out? And this Pharisee here, what what amazes me, did you notice this? Five times, I counted, you count too, but five times he uses the word I in this little prayer that he decided to pray. I mean, the entire focus of the prayer was on himself and on how, how amazing he was and how good he was. And, and it's like he goes into the presence of a perfect and holy God and he, he, be, he leads with, the lead story is, is how, how good and perfect and holy he is. Really? You're going to lead off with that before a, a perfect and awesome and holy God. You're going to lead off with, with how amazing and how good you are. That's, that's a great idea. But again, before, before, I, before I just slam this Pharisee too hard, I have to ask myself, when I pray, and ask yourself the same question, but how often do I use the word I, me, my, How much of my prayer revolves around me? How much of my prayer time is centered around myself? And how often am I just, man, so much like this Pharisee? And the truth is we would never say this and we would never um, want to acknowledge this or even admit that we do this. But, But we do this, don't we? I mean, we judge ourselves by what we don't do, you know? And then we look at the lives of others and and their worst crimes and we judge them by those things. And it's a way of puffing ourselves up and and making us look better and feel better about ourselves and our lives. It's how we rationalize and explain who we are and why we do what we do and how, how, how much better we have to be because of that. But then listen to the prayer of this tax collector and see if you can hear the contrast, see if you can hear the difference that Jesus is trying to paint. Verse 13, the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow saying, oh God, be merciful to me for I am a sinner. Did you catch that? 11 words. He used the word I once. And that was only in relationship to his status as a sinner before Almighty God. There's something different about the way this guy prays, isn't there? I mean, for us, he demonstrates what I would call extreme humility. 
extreme humility. And something I've noticed about the scripture, and maybe you've noticed this too, especially about Jesus, is that extreme humility is something that God always applauds. Like extreme humility, it, it, it always demonstrates to God that we get it. it, it I, th- I think in some way it communicates to God that we, as best we can get our arms around, we, we realize how great and awesome and huge he is and how small we are. Here's the amazing thing that I think about the story. This tax collector had used his power and his authority and his position to abuse people for a long, long time. Because of his title and his occupation, he was able to extort money from people and they had no recourse. He was able to use his power to keep others subdued. He was able to to marginalize people just because he wanted to for his own personal gain. But that wasn't just the case for the tax collector. The Pharisee had done the exact same thing in his very own way. He'd used his power and his position to exalt himself above others. So two men go to church to pray. Both have used their power, their position, their authority over others. And listen to what happens in verse 14. Jesus says this, I tell you, the sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home, justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. So the batting coach tells my son, Will, when you go to the plate and it's the first pitch, keep your strike zone small. The bike experts over here at Bike Plus tell me and Alicia, if you want to teach your daughter how to ride a bike, drop the seat, take off the pedals, let her scoot around. They could have easily said, hey, buy this new gadget. You need this new bat. You need this new technology. You need a whole brand new bike. They didn't say anything like that. What they challenged us to do was to change our approach. This Pharisee went in before God, demonstrating and talking and applauding his own self, his own accolades, his own accomplishments, his own credentials. This Pharisee walked away, uh, the tax collector walked away completely justified before God. Why? What was the difference? One thing, his approach, his approach, his humility. And, And if you don't hear anything else today, I want you to hear this one thing. If you want to write down anything from today, write down this one thing. Because I think this is the one thing that has the power to change your prayer life and the power to change my prayer life. This is the one thing that if you want to experience and feel the presence of God like you've never felt before, this is it. If you want to experience the power in prayer when you pray to God, this is it. Here it is. Before you approach the heart of God in prayer, check your heart for others. Before you approach the heart, before you ever dare approach the heart of God in prayer, Check your heart for others. Because I can tell you that in the presence of Jesus Christ, there's no room for pride. In the presence of Jesus Christ, there is no room for you to look down on anybody else. In the presence of your Savior, there is no place 
for you to have contempt for any one person or any group of people or any other tribe or nation or tongue or whatever before you dare enter the presence of God. Check your heart for others. It's all about our approach, people. It's all about our approach. Some of you know that for a long time I was a youth minister, and when I was in Alabama serving a church there, we, I would take a group of teens and parents to Arizona, to Tuba City, Arizona. In uh, that place, there's a, a reservation for the Navajo Indians. And these people, as much as any people, maybe more, have been incredibly marginalized by our, our culture and our community and our world. And so we'd go for a week, and, and our job really was just to come in and to, to love on their community. And we did service projects all week long just to love on those people and love on that community. We do a VBS during the day for the kids. Uh, we do other kinds of things throughout the week to really encourage and lift the spirits of people who had been so depressed and demoralized by just a long history of, of suffering and different things. But at the, towards the end of that week, we were invited to, uh, to go participate in a sweat lodge. I don't know if you know what a sweat lodge is. I've never heard of one. Some of you think, you know, you're, that's your car after you get in it after lunch. Uh, this is a picture on the screen of a sweat lodge, uh, like the one that we went into in Arizona with the Navajo Indians. It's a, they dig it out in the ground, so half of it's underground, and they put up these, these limbs from trees, and they cover it with, with mud. Um, and before you enter into the, the sweat lodge, the Indian who's going to lead your time together he goes out early and he builds uh, this bonfire. And in the middle of the bonfire, at the bottom of it, are these lava rocks. And they call these rocks the grandfathers. And they call them that because they've been there long before you or I. And so these are the grandfathers. And uh, they cook these rocks in the fire for, for hours. And then finally, uh, they invite us in. And, and only about 10 or 15 people can enter a, a sweat lodge at any one time. It's a really small space. You sit in a circle and in the corner is the, the, the one who leads your time together, the sweat lodge, and then uh, a little pit. And he takes a shovel and he picks up the rocks and he puts them in the pit inside the sweat lodge. And then about 10, 15, 17 of us will enter and, and sit together. And then they close this large blanket over the front of the entrance. So at this point, you're sitting in there with a small group of people. And uh, the heat, the temperature is already rising. And you can't see your hand in front of your face. It's so, so dark. And the one leading your time together says, okay, we're going to go around the room and uh, I want you to confess, to share whatever it is that you need prayers for. And so we take turns going around the room and saying, this is what I need prayers for. And then he says, okay, there's, there's only a couple of rules. The first rule is this. Uh, when we begin, you, you cannot pray for yourself. In fact, it's going to get so hot in here. The only way that you're going to make it through the sweat lodge is if you focus your entire attention on God and on praying for others. And the second rule is that we all pray out loud. You're going to, we talked about this last week, about crying out to God. We, we were crying out to God. So you pray out loud. You can't pray for yourself. You can only pray for the others who were in the sweat lodge with you. And then we begin. We begin praying out loud, and we're just we're trying to get the hang of this. We're praying as best we can. It's kind of the temperature's rising. And then he, he takes a, he has a jug of water, and he'll pour pour water on these hot lava rocks and steam begins to rise. And as the steam rises, the temperature rises, the prayers get louder and louder. 
He does it again and he does it again. And at this point, your whole body is dripping in sweat and steam, but you can't see anybody else. You can't even see your hand in front of your face, but you're crying out with all you can for all that you can remember for all the people that are in there with you, crying out to God for them over and over and over again. More steam, more heat, temperature rising. Now your focus is just so intently on God and on the other people you're praying for. Because as long as you can keep, as long as you can not think about the heat and the temperature, as long as you can keep your entire focus on praying for God and praying for others, you can keep your sanity, you can keep it together and you keep praying and you keep going. And at this point, you are just humbled in every way. You have confessed what it is you need prayer for and you're, you're sitting there with nothing but your swimsuit on and you can't see your hand in front of your face. You're covered in sweat from head to toe and you're crying out to God with all you have for your friends and their needs and what, what's going on in their life. And then all of a sudden, it's over. And they lift that flap off the entrance in the evening in Arizona, some of you have been there, you know what it's like, but it's, it gets kind of cool as the sun is setting. And the air there is so dry. You step out of the entrance of that sweat lodge, and it's like all the steam and sweat just like just evaporates off your body, and you've never felt better in your entire life. Part of that's physical, no doubt about it. But part of that is so spiritual. Because what you've done over the last few minutes is you have changed your entire approach to prayer. And you have focused on God and you have prayed for others and you have trusted others to pray for you. Now, I'm not suggesting we build a sweat lodge out in front of the church, although that would be pretty cool. What I am suggesting is that we take on this same mentality. That before we enter into the presence of God, before we approach the throne of God in prayer, that we check our heart for others and we pray for them. And maybe we, maybe just maybe, we pray a little bit less about ourselves. And we trust others to do that for us. And we pray for those that we know need the love and the touch and the grace of Jesus Christ. Maybe you should do this. Maybe this could be our prayer and your prayer. Maybe we should just pray this prayer, these 11 words of this tax collector. Maybe this is the way you could begin your prayer this week as you enter into your prayer time. Oh God, be merciful to me for I am a sinner. And by the way, if you've never prayed before, I want to ask you, I want to to encourage you to try this. This is just an acknowledgement of a simple fact. It's not a confession of something that you don't already know or God didn't already know. This is an act of humility of saying, God, I'm going to come into your presence with this understanding. Be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. Just start with that and see how that changes your week. Here's what I can promise. The lower you get, the better you pray. The more you humble yourself before God, the greater power and presence you will experience with God. Because the lower we get, the better we pray. The lower we get, the better we play. Humble yourselves. We sang it and we read it. And he will lift you up. He will. Let God do the lifting this week. Church, if you would, stand with me. Here's my favorite part of the story. I'm not sure who you identified with in the story, but do you know who Jesus identified with in the story? The tax collector. Because even though Jesus never sinned, He became sin. He took on your sin and my sin. 
And even though he was lifted up on a cross, people looked down on him and they despised him. And he took on that for you and for me. And he was humbled. Actually, he was just flat out humiliated. And he was murdered. And he was put in the ground. And he went to the lowest place you could possibly go. But he didn't stay there. Because three days later, God raised him up. And if you'll humble yourself, even if part of you has to die, God will raise you up again. So I want to encourage you today. If we have any elders or their wives in the room, I want to ask you just to make your way to the edges of the room. And I want to ask you today, if you need prayers for any reason, if you need to humble yourself before God for any reason, just find some of these men and women and and let them, let them pray for you. Let them usher you into the presence of God. Because when you humble yourself, just as you are, you can come just as you are, admit who you are, come to terms with who you are, and then let God come into your life and lift you up.